Have you ever been curious about how one recovers from a brain injury? This is a very difficult topic. Today we are going to learn a lot about this topic from Dr. Sandeep Vajnavi, who's an MD and a PhD. He recently wrote a book with Vani Rao, who's also an MD and a leading expert on extensive experiences helping patients recover from concussions and other brain injuries. The book is titled Healing the Traumatized Brain. This book goes about merging the fields of neurology and psychiatry, and it is clearly written for anyone who has dealt with a traumatic brain injury or caregivers. The book explains how the brain works, how injuries affect the brain, and how to use one's own power to recover. Dr. Vajnavi and I discuss many issues dealing with brain injuries, ways to naturally heal, medication options, lifestyle changes, practical steps, and how to actually promote neuroplasticity in your life. Dr. Vajnavi is well-spoken and down-to-earth. He's an excellent guest, and he does his best to break down these complicated concepts into something that almost anyone can learn about. I do believe you're going to enjoy this episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with me, your host, Paul Kraus. Before we get to the interview, let me tell you about Therapist Billing Services. Therapist Billing Services is a billing service for therapists that was created by therapists. Check us out at www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sandeep Vajnavi, MD, PhD. It's really a great pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Excellent. We are going to be talking about a book that you have written with your colleague, Vani Rao, uh, MD. It's called Healing the Traumatized Brain, Coping After Concussion and Other Brain Injuries. And also there's another subtitle, Helping with Mood, Memory, Behavior Changes, and More. Can you uh, tell me, this was a book that you wrote as a follow-up to the original best-selling book, The Traumatized Brain. And I was curious, just as a first question, what inspired you to write these two books? Yeah, um, I can tell you my background is as a, as a neuropsychiatrist, which means that you know, I've done a residency in psychiatry, but I've also done a fellowship in behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry and uh, have a PhD background in uh, cognitive neuroscience. So I've always been interested in basically the borderline between neurology and psychiatry. To me, it's just amazing and kind of sad that even to this in this day and age, we really have two specialties for the same organ, the brain, which is really strange to me because, I mean, we don't see that anywhere else in medicine. You don't have two specialists for the heart, for example, or the lungs or something like that. But we do for the brain, and I think it's kind of a historical vestige and uh, hopefully things are kind of getting together again between neurology and psychiatry but that was one of the reasons i wanted to to write these books is for the public to understand that really when we talk about the brain we're looking at neurological quote-unquote neurological factors but we're also looking at psychiatric factors it's the same brain it's the same organ and many illnesses and brain injuries lead to both quote-unquote neurological and quote-unquote psychiatric outcomes or or effects and that was really kind of one of the driving forces for me. And the other driving force was I uh, worked for a number of years at a brain tumor center. And, and I've seen a lot of patients with traumatic brain injury outside of that as well. And one of the things that always strikes me is that people kind of subconsciously perhaps just automatically assume that if it's something that relates to motor functioning, well, that's quote unquote real. You know, that's because the brain has been damaged or injured. But then if there are problems with mood or behavior, people take that on themselves. I mean, they don't understand mm. that that also can be due to the injury. And so there's a lot of education that I do when I when I see patients and I do neuropsychiatric evaluations to really help the patient and the family members, especially to understand that damage to neural circuitry, to neural networks can cause mood problems, they can cause behavioral problems, they can cause cognitive problems, what I call neuropsychiatric symptoms in the book, as well as, of course, uh, more traditional things, neurological, such as motor dysfunction and things along those lines. 
Excellent. That's a very uh, good summary of that. And I had actually always wondered why uh, neurology seemed to be a completely different department than psychiatric. Mm -hmm. And I actually have a friend who is a uh, he he's a psychologist who does both psychiatric and psychological evaluations. But he has worked on developing some uh, well using the tools of the objective neurological tests as well mm -hmm. with some uh, helpers. Uh, he has them do these different tests on people, and then he kind of summarizes it. But it, he calls it a neural, a neural, neurological psychological exam, yeah. which is different. Yeah. Um, so that being said, in the book, it's very readable. It's obviously for the public, and and you kind of explain the structure of the brain. But I think an interesting point that you were making, uh, because and as the book goes on, it talks more and more about. You know, what are these injuries? What types of injuries you can have? But an, a thing that struck me that I did like is that you you spent a great deal of time not only talking about the traditional, what we would, you know, brain injuries where people think of somebody, um, you know, losing the ability to move part of their body or something mm -hmm. like this or a memory, right? But, but very important point is that sometimes it's a behavioral or emotional change in the person. Right. And that is where the family members, I think, really get upset because off, well, they get upset both ways, but they can really be upset about at the person mm -hmm. saying, why are you changing your mood and behavior right. around us? What the heck is wrong with you? Whereas right. if they have an arm that's not working, it's obvious like that was right. from the brain injury. Is that kind of what you were trying to do there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's exactly what it is, because it is it is sort of based on our notion, honestly, of free will and kind of all these philosophical assumptions that we have built in in our society. And so, you know, it's interesting, uh, though, you know, it may seem controversial to the general public, but most neuroscientists believe that there's limited free will in the sense that your brain does constrict basically your behavior. Right. So if you have injury to your brain in certain areas of the brain, certain circuits or networks in the brain, you're going to see a certain outcome. You're going to see a certain behavior. You can see a personality change in a certain direction, for example, or you can see a mood problem in a certain direction, such as depression, or you can see mood lability, moods going up and down a lot. Or you can see something called pseudobulbar affect, where the, the person is crying or laughing almost uncontrollably, but yet the mood itself is not actually changed. So the, the bottom line is that there are different circuits that if you damage them, they will cause very predictable changes in mood and behavior and cognition. And that's not intuitively obvious, I think, to the lay public, because as you just put it, if someone injures a part of their brain that affects their movement, let's say their left arm, well, I mean, it's obvious to most of us, okay, the person had a stroke, let's say, and they have damage to the part of the brain that controls the left arm. Okay, it's not their fault. It's, it's the stroke. But on the other hand, if you have a person who now changes their behavior uh, after a brain injury, it could be a stroke, the same sort of brain injury, but it's a stroke in a different part of the brain, a different network in the brain. That too can cause a very predictable change in outcome, in this case, in behavior or in, in terms of mood or in terms of their thinking or memory. And we don't necessarily think, oh, well, this is the same thing. No, we tend to think of it, oh, well, that's the person. The person has changed. They're doing this on purpose, that there is some willful aspect to it. And that's why I brought up the notion of free will there is because, of course, there is, you know, we all think we have free will to some degree. But as a, from a neuroscience perspective, if you damage certain circuits in the brain, you're going to have certain changes in your personality, your mood and your behavior and your cognition. And just as reliably as if you damage another part of your brain, you're going to have a loss of movement in your left arm. I love that summary. And before I go on to ask you more questions, I want to make a little crossover comment to the world of what we call trauma-informed therapy, but now kind of becoming nervous system-informed psychotherapy mm -hmm. and uh, developmental studies, is that uh, I believe the free will argument is also uh, being had in the fact that many many people in our field have discovered that due to your environment and your living conditions and your parenting and your culture and your socioeconomic status these things can all influence yeah. a person's behavior and moods and abilities so much so that the person may not 
be able to behave like our society or a person, a segment of our society or a family member believes they should be able to behave, right? right? They've actually lost that ability to behave in a certain way. This is a very vague and general thing, obviously. And, uh, but that then as they go through treatment and psychotherapy, they can regain yeah. some of these skills that they may have not developed or underdeveloped or, and these weren't even caused by a brain injury. This was just right. the, the the way that they developed was influenced in a way that makes people think that there's something drastically horribly wrong with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and we see that as that's just a developmental side that's showing that how the brain develops can stay in place in a very rigid way or a chaotic right. way right. that is very off-putting to other individuals in society. I don't, any comments on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes perfect sense and kind of fits in exactly what I was saying, because, I mean, ultimately, the argument would be from a, again, from a neuroscience point of view, is that it's really about the brain and how it uh, changes over time. So there's this notion of neuroplasticity or neuroplasticity, which is really your brain's ability to change based on experience. Now, the experience could be exactly what you just mentioned. It could be childhood experiences, adverse events in childhood. It could be uh, other environmental factors. It could be a brain injury. That's also an experience to the brain. Any of those things can change these brain circuits, these networks. And once you change those networks, like I said, in a certain way, it is something you can develop. You can develop these other symptoms, these dysfunctions like we just talked about in terms of mood or behavior. And, and in a very, like I said, in a very predictable way, oftentimes. So the brain is very malleable. It's, it's uh, you know, it is basically our interface with the world. And so it changes. It changes all the time. Every time we learn something, your brain is changing. It could be something good. It could be something bad. But your brain is going to be changing. And so we can actually utilize that fact and use technologies to actually help the brain change in a positive direction. It could be after you know, let's say an adverse events in childhood, or it could be after a brain injury, but it would be the same concept. Yes, absolutely. So I'm glad you pointed, uh, you helped us understand that more. I think what I'm going to move into, because I was going to ask you some stories of success, but I think to understand the sources of success or stories of difficulty in the medical world with brain injuries and concussions and whatnot, I think we must understand this concept of neuroplasticity, which you go into in much detail in part two of the book. Could you maybe explain a little bit of this, what you mean by plastic or neuroplasticity? Yeah. yeah so this, uh, this term neuroplasticity is really kind of, uh, getting from this idea that, uh, well, if you have a plastic mold and you put something in that plastic mold, the plastic sort of conforms to fit around it. And you can have different plastic molds depending on what you're putting into the plastic. So you can have a you know, plastic shape A or plastic shape B or plastic shape C, but they're going to look different. And so this is really coming from William James, the famous psychologist and philosopher, and he did everything, it seems, uh, back in the 19th century. And so, so it's really coming from his ideas that there, there is this plasticity, which really just kind of means that changeability or malleability. And neuroplasticity is malleability of the brain, so that the brain can actually change. Now, for many years, we used to think in, in neuroscience that it's really only children where the brains are more flexible, the brains can change a lot, and that's true. But we used to think uh, years ago that there's not much that can happen in adult brains. But now we've discovered over the years that that's not the case. It's true that children's brains are more flexible still, but adult brains are also changeable. And as I mentioned, just in terms of learning, every time as an adult we learn something, our brains are changing, literally physically changing. And so there are ways that we have, we have tools now where we can really enhance neuroplasticity. So you know, this is normal in the adult brain to have this malleability, neuroplasticity, but let's find, let's try to find ways to actually improve that neuroplasticity uh, in certain cases if we, if we have a patient who has a certain dysfunction. So, uh, and there are many ways to do this, by the way. So one of them is called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Uh, that's something I do in clinic myself a lot. So TMS, just to briefly describe it, it's basically using magnetic pulses, brief magnetic pulses uh, that we uh, then basically allow the magnetic field to change across the scalp and it goes right into the brain. And that induces change in neuronal firing. So the neurons are firing at a different rate, they're excited or they're disinhibited, but they're changing. 
And so with TMS, we can do this in a repetitive fashion where we're pulsing, we're having these magnetic pulses on the head, and they allow over time, they allow the, the underlying neural circuitry to change. That's neuroplasticity. We're actually changing or modulating or molding, if you will, the neural circuitry that we're affecting with the magnetic pulses. And we can do this in a way that enhances uh, clinical outcomes. So for example, in people with chronic treatment-resistant depression, and this is where the FDA has cleared TMS, for, for patients who have that problem, we actually stimulate the left side of the, of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the front part of the brain. We stimulate this over time. It's multiple sessions over you know, multiple days and weeks. But we stimulate over and over again that part of the brain. Ultimately, what's happening is that the brain is changing from that stimulation so that this part of the brain has better connections to more of the emotional brain deep inside. And so this frontal lobe, this part of the frontal lobe can better uh, kind of modulate our emotions so that people can kind of get out of that hole of depression that they're in. So we can do this with other things. We can do the OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, different target, but same concept. Uh, also with smoking cessation, people who have chronic smokers, that's also something we can use TMS for to improve that addiction. So there are many, many uses. You can think of TMS kind of like a platform. Uh, and you know, once we know the neural networks that are involved, we can target different parts of those networks and actually change them, modulate them, enhance neuroplasticity. So that's a very exciting, I think, area of all of this. Uh, I think that you know there are lots of studies that are ongoing for lots of different conditions. So, but right now we have these three um, FDA clearances for TMS. It's uh, major depression. OCD and smoking cessation. In the future, hopefully we'll have others, including uh, mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's and all kinds of things like that. So that's, I think that's the future because we, we medications are, have a role, of course, therapy has a role. All of those things are also affecting the brain, obviously. But what I like about neuromodulation techniques like TMS is that we're directly using our understanding of neuroscience and we're directly impacting those circuits that are dysfunctional and we can actually improve the functioning of those circuits. And um, and there are other ways. TMS is just one way. I also do research with digital therapeutics, which is basically game playing for the brain. There are actually, uh, there's actually an FDA approved, FDA cleared video game now for ADHD in, in children as well as adults now. And uh, so this game was basically designed in such a way that it actually improves the functioning of, of certain circuits in your brain that are dysfunctional in ADHD. And again, just like a TMS, with TMS, you have to do it repetitively. So you have to play this game, say 20, 30 minutes a day, certain number of days a week, et cetera, for a certain amount of time. It's just like training for a marathon or training in some way physically. It's the same thing with your brain. You have to train it. So you've got to do it over and over again. Same thing with TMS. You have to do it on a daily basis for say six weeks. But the bottom line is that all of these different technologies and techniques are ultimately enhancing neuroplasticity, which which we need when a person has a brain injury or has some sort of a neuropsychiatric disorder that we want to improve. Excellent summary. I yes, TMS is obviously some of the cutting edge. And I the thing I like about TMS from what I've read so far is just that, like you said, it's actually by targeting those specific areas, you're trying to get the brain's and the body's natural kind of like what well, I guess the natural healing or the natural integration to connectivity, connectivity, to connectivity. Thank you. Yeah, connectivity. Exactly. Thank you. That's a better way of putting it yeah. to, to actually work itself versus right. when you, you know, like you said, medications and therapy have a role, but that's the external, right. You know, coming in where this is like you're, you're the external magnetic is in, is 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 really going right for the internal connectivity parts yeah um okay. so like all these things can alter the brain obviously uh in various ways um to enhance uh what what we're looking for so i was curious about some um i want to get to the technical parts for our audience but i want to kind of give them a little flavor of maybe some stories of success you had treating let's just say some type of brain injury um yeah. could you share one of those Sure, sure. Yeah, um, uh, as I said, I've, I've worked in the in a brain tumor clinic for a, a number of years, <clears throat> and 
What's really, uh, I think, fascinating with, with brain tumors is that, I mean, there's clearly something wrong. You can see it on the MRI. So you know that there's an overt brain injury, which is not the case with a lot of things. Like, with you know, we don't have that with, uh, you know, lots of other illnesses. But with, with brain tumors, that's one good thing is we can see it, right? But, you know, once you do surgery, you do, uh, you know, treatment, chemotherapy, et cetera, oftentimes people are left with these uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms and and Unfortunately, a lot of times patients don't really understand that it's due to the brain tumor or the families don't understand. And that was really one of the things that I really enjoyed with this patient population is to really help them understand that connection. So I'll give you an example of of a case. Um, I had a patient who had a brain tumor deep within the brain, actually. Um, Well, I won't say it's deep within the brain, but it was in the insula, which is basically if you kind of think of the brain like this, this is the front part of the brain. This is the temporal lobe. The insula is right between, essentially. It's kind of hidden. It's called the hidden lobe of the brain. And so she had a uh, she had a tumor there. She had resection of the tumor. Um, she had chemotherapy. She had actually done quite well from uh, just sort of the overt oncology point of view. But she had this very deep depression uh, that that was there. That that was a very kind of a uh, very big problem for her. Ultimately, that was the biggest issue for her, more than anything else, was this depression. And it was kind of um, it was an hedonic depression. It was basically she was not able to enjoy anything. That was really the biggest problem for her, and it made a big difference in her day to day life, her relationship with her husband, and so forth. And so that once you know though the neuroscience behind this, I mean, you understand that the insulin actually plays a big role in terms of mood regulation. Uh, it's important in what's called the salience network, which is uh, important in terms of the brain knowing what's important, what's not important. So there are all these networks in the brain um, that, that have all kinds of roles. But in, in this field, in terms of neuropsychiatry, we find that the salience network, the cognitive control network, and the default mode network, those are big, those are big three networks in the brain that if you have damage to them, you can cause all kinds of neuropsychiatric symptoms. And so that was an example of a patient where really understanding, okay, what well, the insula is is playing an important role in, in mood and in anxiety and so forth, allowed a, allowed me to really kind of target that in a in a different way than it would have normally done. So if it was just a patient who came in with depression, you know, we, we have an algorithm we typically use in terms of medications and so forth. But in her case, I was able to actually really get at the anhedonia. And there are certain medications that I use that were really specific to anhedonia, uh, which ultimately were able to help her and improve her her symptoms. So I think that's a great example maybe of where you can kind of look at it from a neurology side, you look at it at it from a psychiatry side, and you really realize it's all about the networks. It's all about the neural networks and how can we modulate those neural networks. Sometimes you can do it with medications because you know, dopamine plays an important role in terms of anhedonia in that part of the brain. And so we could, uh, I use a medication to help with that, increasing dopamine in that part of the brain, and, and that would, and that helped her. So that's just a, an example. But, you know, in traumatic, in the traumatic brain injury world, I've seen lots of patients who, uh, for example, will have personality changes due to a frontal lobe injury. And this is mm-hmm. very classic, actually. And then we, I write about it in the book. But Phineas Gage is the, the person everyone always talks about, if it's anything related to uh, neuroscience, oftentimes. So Phineas Gage, just for the audience, uh, he was a railroad worker in the 1800s who uh, had an accident. He had a tamping rod that actually hit from right above his eyes, the orbital frontal cortex, actually came out uh, on the other side. They were able to, the surgeons were able to, you know, kind of remove it. He actually did fine from a physical point of view, from a quote-unquote neurological point of view, he was you know, seemed normal. But what people started to realize is that his personality had changed tremendously. Before, he was this very conscientious person, you know, made sure he was everywhere on time, got his work done. And then after this accident, he was a completely different person. Uh, the famous quote is, Gage was no longer Gage. He became much more disinhibited, impulsive, uh, not conscientious, almost sociopathic. And so that's an example of where you damage the the certain part of the brain, you're going to have all of these changes in behavior and personality. So it's not like Phineas Gage was trying to do this on purpose. He was not trying to be this way. 
he couldn't help it because that part of his brain was damaged. And so I, I do see a lot of that uh, where people, especially with orbitofrontal cortex damage, just like Phineas Gage, uh, people can have a lot of impulsivity and disinhibition. And there are you know, medications we use to sort of focus on that aspect of things, lower the impulsivity. Excellent. Yes, uh, that is a very good a good story. I remember that from psychology school, uh, yeah. where I where I went to a graduate school. But uh, yeah, and there's many types of brain injuries that can cause so many things. Obviously, this is why I tell people always wear a bike helmet if you're riding a mm-hmm. bike or a scooter. Now we have scooters in all the major cities that you can rent for on your phone. Yeah. Uh, wear a helmet. But mm-hmm. I was looking at uh, the types of brain damage. I didn't even know all these existed. But we have a contusion, which is the bruising of the brain, which is more of like a, is that what would cause a concussion or is that beyond a concussion? Um, you can have a contusion. Concussion is kind of a general term for a mild traumatic brain injury. A contusion mm-hmm. is actually more overt than mm-hmm. just a concussion, but it, those are kind of orthogonal terms. One is really in terms of severity. So a concussion is a mild brain injury, traumatic brain injury. You can have a moderate traumatic brain injury. You can have a severe traumatic brain injury. But then you can have different causes mm. of those brain injuries. And contusion is one mechanism by which you get a, a brain injury. The bruising, right. Yeah. There's a lot of scary things in here, like breaking the skull, like an epidural yeah. collection of blood between the skull and the thin outer layer of the brain called the dura matter, the subdural. So yeah. it's just like, and, my, and then the bleeding in the brain, this mm-hmm. intracerebral, um, and anoxic, which is the lack of oxygen or decreased oxygen to the brain, which we've found with people who are almost drowning or things like that. Right. Right. Diffuse, I didn't even know about, which is injured to the white matter fibers of the brain. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. sub, suffice to say, the brain is a, is a very resilient organ, but all in a very malleable organ, but also very delicate yeah. uh, and yeah. important. Yeah. Uh, to get in if you've had any sort of, you know, head injury in any sort of way. But could you, I think most people can understand that lack of oxygen can cause Mm -hmm. parts of the brain to literally die off, right? I mean, am I right about that? That's right, that's right. And then brain blood, you know, forming in different parts of the skull or between different layers can cause pressure and the pressure can cause major damage to different regions which can then cause damage to speech motor function memory all these things you know am i right about that okay right and then but what is this diffuse what is that the damage to the white matter i don't even know what that is sure so there's something called diffuse axonal injury or dai it's basically if you think about the way the brain works i mean you've got neurons and then you've got white matter tracks that connect the neurons right and and so you can have a let's say a a whiplash type of an injury. You're in a car, <clears throat> you're, the car stops suddenly, your head moves suddenly forwards, and then it goes back suddenly. Yes. The bike could actually stretch those fibers, those white matter fibers. And so even though you may not have a kind of obvious brain injury, your MRI, standard MRI would actually be normal, mm. but you may actually have tearing or stretching at least of those fibers, the white matter fibers, and if you have that, there's a very kind of a very common pattern that we see in terms of cognition. People oftentimes are slower in their thinking afterwards. Uh, they oftentimes, you know, their processing speed goes down. Uh, they may have more mood changes towards depression. I mean, there are all kinds of things that we can oftentimes see with that. Um, there are some uh, types of scans that can maybe pick up that. Uh, so use like diffuse sensor imaging, DTI, MRI. And that can show some of that the damage, but there's a much more subtle. It's much more subtle damage, uh, but that is also a kind of brain injury, and it's important to not, you know, ignore any type of situation like that. Even if your head wasn't directly hit, and we typically think of a traumatic brain injury when your head is hitting something or something hits your head. In this case, you may not even hit your head actually, but it's just the the sudden movements off your brain within your skull that can cause the tearing. And as you said, the brain is, you know, it's, it's malleable, but it's delicate. You're exactly right about that. Because, you know, if you think about it, your skull, of course, is very hard. It's a protective case around your brain. Your brain is basically has a consistency of jello. It's a gelatinous material. And there are sharp ridges with your skull, you know, especially in the front part of your brain, so, and, and the side part of your, uh, sorry, front part and side parts of your skull. So there are these bony ridges. And so if you have your brain jostling 
inside the skull, the actual bony ridges can can uh, cause damage to the brain. So it's really unfortunate in many ways that the front and the side, the frontal lobes and the temporal lobes, those are very common areas of brain injury for that reason, because you've got the soft material sort of jostling with this hard material, the skull. And those parts of the brain are critical for mood, behavior, and cognition. So we see a lot of these problems in people who have uh, brain injuries to the front or the temporal lobes, frontal or temporal lobes. Um, and that's not uncommon at all after car accidents or other things like that. And it's interesting you said it's unfortunate the brain is formed that way, but I wonder if that was just because evolutionarily we really weren't going over 20 miles an hour until yeah. about... I don't know when the locomotive was invented or something like that, right? Right, right, right. A couple hundred years ago, yeah. and so then I I wonder about uh, I wonder about people that are into these sort of like thrill-seeking sports, like riding these mm -hmm. dirt bikes and uh, right. you know NASCAR drivers and these people that are going hundreds of miles an hour and these maybe they never got in a collision, but I wonder if the jostling itself. I wonder if that yeah. if you've ever seen an injury from that or issues. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely can occur, especially if, it, it's, if it's repetitive, right? It's mm. really, um, I mean, certainly one or two type of things like that may not be so much, but if you keep on doing it over time, then absolutely that can cause that can cause problems in, in terms of these subtle findings. And again, it may not be obvious on a standard MRI, but people may have all sorts of more kind of generic symptoms. They feel like they're slower in their thinking, their mood is off, uh, could be they have some balance problems. Uh, so it's, it, it can be much more subtle than sort of the obvious, okay, uh, I have this big you know rod in my head. Um, it, it, it may be very subtle, um, but yes, that's absolutely true. And we also have to be careful, I mean, over time uh, about the risk of dementia. Not necessarily with just this, but I mean, for example, there is something called dementia pugilistica, which is really based on boxing. If your head is hit multiple times, even if you weren't knocked unconscious or anything like that, but like in, in, in terms of boxers, you know, they get hit a lot, right? And they're moving their head a lot and they're jostling uh, the brain inside their skull a lot. Uh, over time, at least in some people, they may develop a type of dementia, uh, there's also this, uh, it's not entirely clear yet, but we do know that from data from uh, pathology, actually for NFL players and uh, people who get a lot of head hits or at least jostling of the head. Again, if you do this over and over and over again, there's some percentage of people who will develop a sort of dementia with this. So it, it is, as you said, it's critical to wear helmets. It's critical to protect your head uh, as, as best you can. And try to minimize the number of times your head is hit or the time that you have, you know, huge uh, movements of your head where you're, you know, like in a whiplash type of situation or whatever it may be, or a sports situation or, you know, extreme sports, as you mentioned. And not that you can't do any of those things, but it's just important to be aware so that you minimize your risks. I'm glad you said that. I was actually going to bring up the NFL because if you... Mm -hmm. If you're just a person in the public who hasn't heard of this, if you even though the NFL players wear these helmets, they still yeah. have a lot of hits to their head, and they're trying to improve the helmets action the last couple of years. Right. But if you just look up on the internet stories of NFL players, mm -hmm. behavioral changes yeah. in older age, including massive behavioral changes and even suicides due yes. and and dementias, uh, are there all over the place especially with players Absolutely. who played in the 80s and 90s uh, now and in the 70s, 1970s. So the I, I wanted to talk about a positive thing for a second, which mm -hmm. was uh, one of your tables in here, which was uh, in the recovery from brain injury section, uh, strategies to enhance neuroplasticity. And I... And this seems like possibly common sense, but actually I like that you wrote it and the other doctor wrote this in the book because I... <laughs> it's the funniest things that these little things sometimes are things we we want to push off and go oh i don't need to do that right yeah but number one exercising regularly could you elucidate a little bit what you mean by that sure sure so exercise is is really sort of a miracle drug so to speak i mean we it seems to help everything but i mean it is true that what's good for your heart is good for your brain uh because there's a commonality there i mean obviously blood flow right so your brain works on blood flow. And one thing which is not commonly known is that your brain is approximately two to 5% off the body mass, but it actually consumes about 20% of your energy. Mm. So it's a huge energy hog. 
it, it really needs a good flow, a good blood flow. And why it needs good flow, but blood flows because of course oxygen is with the blood, right? So you, you want to oxygenate the brain well. And so exercise is good for your brain because it's good for the rest of your body. It's good for your heart. So as you exercise, you develop uh, less resistance, arterial resistance. Your blood flow is smoother and it can diffuse into the brain better. And you have a higher oxygen sort of utilization of the brain. So that's, that's the main thing. The second kind of exercise is cognitive exercise. So brain training. And that's what I was referring to before in terms of like video games for ADHD, those sorts of things that are now uh, have been developed. Those are ways to really train your brain so that if it's like, again, like a muscle in a sense, the more you use the muscle, the stronger it'll be. So same way, the more you use your brain, the better it'll be. And there'll be more what we call cognitive reserve. So we do know this, that in people who have brain injuries or um, have some other, other, you know, something happened to their head and brain, they tend to have less symptoms if they have more reserve, meaning that they have, you know, over the years they've had, uh, let's say, more learning, more education, uh, they are better uh, physically in terms of fitness. All of those things can kind of cushion your brain to adverse consequences from a brain injury, at least to some extent. And it can help in terms of resolution of the brain injury symptoms. In terms of the dementia literature, in some cases, it may actually delay the manifestation of the dementia. I mean, it doesn't prevent the dementia, but it could delay the manifestation to the point where it, it becomes less and less of a problem as people get, you know, as they get older, you know, you have a high risk of getting dementia anyway, but you can push it off late in later years, even so more uh, if you have a good cognitive reserve. So anyway, these are just different examples of how um, really helping your brain by physical fitness, as well as by cognitive fitness can be really um, good for your brain health overall. And I, that's interesting that you said the cognitive part. I was hoping you were going to mention that, but I also want to hear your opinion. Here we go. Um, mm -hmm. About reading books or listening to audio books or podcasts for information. What is your opinion? Now, let's. I know that reading the news can cause stress, right? Yeah. If, I, if I pull up the newspaper, which on my phone now, the New yeah. York Times, and I'm like, oh, I really want to know stuff about the world. I'm like, oh, geez, now I'm all stressed out. But let's just say a novel or a, a self-help yeah. book or a science book or um, reading these books or just listening to audiobooks and podcasts. What are your opinion about that? Maybe more neutral material. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, in my opinion, I think the more you enhance the learning process in your brain, the better it is. So, yes, I think reading a book, a podcast, whatever it may be, I think it's going to be it's, it's really good for you. It's really good for your brain. As Again, as you said, as long as it's a relatively neutral thing, it's not something that's going to you know, agitate you and make things worse. But in general, it's it's good. I mean, I think it, it's not controversial to say that uh, some of the sort of higher highest functioning people in our society they don't hide the fact that they read tons and tons of books. You know, it's great if you have a stack of books on your on your nightstand that you're going through. Um, you know, I think that that has many benefits. I mean, obviously, there is the sensory aspect of it. Of it. There's the motor aspect of it when you're opening a book, especially. Um, but then, of course, there is the whole experience that you have in your brain when you read a book. You have imagination that is that you use. You have... Uh, you can kind of place yourself in the character's position, which is actually really good as well. Uh, you can help you, you naturally sort of predict what's going to happen later on, which is an important part of really what the brain does. That one of the key things that the brain does is, is try to predict the future to minimize harm for your body. And so by reading and imagining and sort of, you know, thinking through all of these things, it can actually help in terms of what the brain is designed to do ultimately. Um, so it increases, I think, efficiency of brain processes. Uh, the faster you read also, the more you read, the faster you read, and the faster you read, um, it basically it helps you in processing speed, which is good for everything you do. So I, I really don't see a downside to to any of this. I think it's if you can do it, I would highly encourage you to do so. Excellent. Um, I want to talk about some of these other strategies because there's so much in this book about people that have brain injuries and what happens and how they recover and all of these things. But honestly, I feel like the hour time we have together is way too small of a time to discuss mm -hmm. those. And I actually would just encourage people to buy the book if they know anyone in their life who has a brain injury or has had one in the past or if they've had one. I, it's so important because I feel like 
like this book is something that you should be reading in college because when I was reading college textbooks, they were so complicated that I would get really bored. But I was not bored when I was reading this book because it was summarized so well. Um, I want to talk just for our listeners, give them a little, it's kind of like a little sample, right? Podcasts are mm-hmm. a little sample. I want to give them a little sample of some other strategies to enhance their own neuroplasticity. So maybe they didn't have a brain injury, right? They just want to enhance it. This is an interesting one. It seems obvious to me, but I don't think it's really obvious to most of the public, which is eating a healthy diet of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, proteins, and hydrating adequately, which you mean water, not mm-hmm. just Gatorade or alcohol or coffee. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming. So can you... Can you just say a little bit about why that's important? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're learning more and more about the brain-gut connection. And this mm-hmm. is something, you know, at one point was was controversial. But I think as we're learning more and more about uh, how the body works, uh, we're understanding that there is very much this connection between the brain and the gut. In fact, there is an enteric nervous system. There's a, a whole nervous system, uh, basically a secondary brain in your gut. Uh, which, of course, is separate from your primary brain in your skull. So there are a lot of neurons, and not just neurons, even uh, non-neuronal cells called glia, which are in your brain but are also in your gut. And there are a lot of studies now that indicate that what happens in your gut affects what is going on in your brain. So there's this bidirectional kind of relationship between your gut and your brain. So as just kind of put it in a simple way, really, it's that you've got a certain cohort of bacteria in your gut. I mean, one of the things which always fascinates me when I when I talk about this is that you have more non-human cells in your body than human cells. I mean, just think about that. That's that's amazing. It's just mind-blowing. You know, we, we think of ourselves, I mean, of course, this is me. This is, I'm a human. I have all these human cells. But we're outnumbered, terribly outnumbered by non Human cells, which includes bacteria primarily, but other types of uh, uh, you know animal cells as well. So it it's something that if we think about this, our body is really more of an ecosystem. It's not just this is my body. There's a whole ecosystem, just like in the environment. You know, there's an ecosystem, and you want to have a balanced ecosystem. You don't want to have an ecosystem where you have you know some particular bacteria or animal just ravaging the rest of the ecosystem. You don't want that. And so similarly. When we talk about our gut, you know, we want to have you know good bacteria as opposed to bad bacteria. I mean, that's all relative, but in generally, we want bacteria that are good for us to be predominant, not bacteria that are more parasitic that can cause problems for us. And how do we do that? Well, nutrition is really the key way. Ultimately, it's your gut, right? So that's your that's your uh, uh, digestive system. So what you eat makes a big difference in terms of the bacteria that you have in your gut and you want to encourage that good bacteria and the bacteria in your gut believe it or not can actually affect neurotransmitters in your brain so there there are data to suggest that serotonin for example which is an important neurotransmitter for mood in the brain there are uh, bacteria in your gut that can actually impact serotonin and and impact what goes on in your brain in terms of mood so this is, I mean, to me, it's really fascinating. It's kind of common sense in some ways, but it's also the science is now really developing, I think, to, to suggest that we really should be focusing on our gut a lot more than, than we traditionally have. And, you know, I like to use the term, the standard American diet is the SAD diet, S-A-D. It makes you sad. You don't want to be eating processed foods all the time. You don't want to eat fast food all the time. Uh, you really want to, as as we talk about in the book, you really want to have uh, green vegetables. You want to have leafy greens. You want to have fruits. You want to have colorful, uh, as we say, this color diet, which is you know having a lot of colorful fruits and vegetables are really important. Water, of course, is really important. Seventy percent of of our body, approximately, is water. So we want to make sure that we have adequate hydration, adequate water in our in our body. And, and these things, I mean, yes, they're common sense. We all kind of know it, but there's a difference between knowing it and doing it, right? And so um, hopefully, you know, if, if people understand how important these things are, these common sense maybe things, how important they are for brain health, they will really start implementing them more. It doesn't mean you have to do this all the time. I mean, no one's going to be perfect on all of these things, but just making one or two changes in your habits and just sticking to them, I think, is much more important than you know doing 100 things at one time or 10 things at one time because you're not likely to be able to continue doing that. 
Yes, very important uh, piece of information. And actually, I was reading a uh, a book called Fiber Fueled by some mm-hmm. doctor. I can't remember what it's called, but he was talking about how the American diet has a, a unfortunate, the standard American diet has an unfortunate lack of fiber, yes. which can then cause this inflammation in the gut, which then can cause the bad bacteria, which then can cause lack of serotonin and all other types yes. of issues that you were like uh, alluding to. I'm going to yes. go through these other ones a little bit quickly because they've been talked about ad nauseum, which are quitting tobacco and street drugs and reducing or eliminating alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, This may not seem obvious, but these things all affect the the brain Mm -hmm. incredibly. Uh, For instance, not only is it, you know, we've had all these anti-smoking campaigns in the U.S., but it's not only that the smoke can cause damage to the cardiovascular system, which can then affect the brain. I also found out that nicotine apparently constricts blood vessels. Mm-hmm. which I did not know because some people say, oh, just you can vape or use a nicotine patch. Well, nicotine is also horrible for our brains mm-hmm. and our cardiovascular system. Alcohol, of course, our body views it as poison. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it sees it as a poison that we have to get rid of it. And then the effect we get from the alcohol, which is you know, the uh, depression in the nervous system to kind of relax us or take away our inhibitions is coming from our body eliminating the poison. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. of course, the hangover is created by the chemical acetylcholine, which uh, it, I believe the liver uh, makes it as a byproduct or something like that. So these things, to enhance neuroplasticity, these are your tips. Um, also engaging in hobbies, because you said here, as the writer Will Durant wrote, paraphrasing Aristotle, we are what we repeatedly do. Practicing tasks mm-hmm. and repeating activities can help with rewiring the brains. Similarly, it is, impossible, it is possible that enriching our lives with novelty, creativity, and challenges can promote neuroplasticities. And I saw a direct link with that in your advice here to engage in hobbies and also staying active by learning new tasks as long as they are pleasurable, which right. could be you know, something like learning to kayak or, uh, you know, or learning to juggle or use a yo-yo or uh, play an instrument or something just something interesting, something active versus the passive consumption of media, which is television, internet, um, where you aren't really learning, you're just sort of uh, numbing your emotions. Is that a decent summary of those? It is. And and just to add to that, what I would say, this is something I tell my patients all the time, is one of the easiest things you can do in terms of learning something new is uh, use your other hand more. Mm -hmm. If you're right-handed, start using your left hand more. Try to do more things with your left hand or vice versa. Because, you know, over time, if you if you do that over and over again, you're going to you're going to rewire your brain. Your brain is going to change just from that simple thing, simple act of using your non-dominant hand more. That's wonderful. Um, two last ones that I want to hit on before we go into a little bit more about the the brain injury and wrap up is the practicing relaxation and self-care. And you wrote as such as yoga and meditation. And there are immense studies and a stack of books that are on my shelves about how mindfulness meditation, which yes. is the most simple thing to ever learn to do, <laughs> apparently uh, increases gray matter in the brain. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about yeah. why that's important? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so meditation such as mindfulness, as you mentioned, I mean, it's really, as you said, it's simple, but the key is again, kind of making it a practice, making it a daily part of your routine. Uh, and, and the, another little phrase I like to, to use is that just like you have dental hygiene, you have mental hygiene. So like you brush your teeth every day. You don't really think about it. Most people anyway, you just do it. It's, it's a habit. Similarly, you want to have a habit of mental hygiene. So some sort of a practice a stress management practice, uh, such as mindfulness or other meditation, yoga practices. I think it's absolutely critical, not just for people with brain injury, but really for everyone in our modern day in society. You know, we we have a chronic stress problem and chronic stress in society affects us. It affects our brain. And so you, we're, our brains are not going to be as efficient. Your mood is not going to be as good. Our uh, cognition is not going to be as good. Our attention is not going to be a good as good. I, I think we're seeing that already. Yeah, there's you know skyrocketing rates of problems like this in our society, and part of it is because of chronic stress and the fact that you know we don't have a good way necessarily of managing our stress, our daily stress. It doesn't. It's not necessarily just the big events in life that are that can cause these problems. We're talking about daily small stressors, but consistent stressors. So similarly, I think it's really important to have some sort of a daily consistent practice that sort of mitigates 
these daily stressors that we have that build up over time. So mindfulness is a good one. Uh, as you said, there are tons of books on it. There are tons of apps. Uh, there are all kinds of ways you can learn about mindfulness. Um, it's really, uh, to me, mindfulness is is all about essentially kind of allowing yourself to be more observant. Uh, you could be more observant of your thoughts without reacting to them necessarily, or more observant about your body, about your breathing especially. Those are very common ways to kind of ground yourself in the present moment. So that can be helpful. And I, I talk about in the book also some specific other meditation techniques called, one is called TM, Transcendental Meditation, and the other is called Sky Sudarshan Kriya Yoga. Let me talk about them really briefly here. So Transcendental Meditation or TM is, is actually a very well-validated meditation technique. Lots of studies uh, that are, and in fact, I just uh, published uh, a paper in the Journal of American Medical Association Network Open, where we did a study of Transcendental Meditation for, for physicians and healthcare workers for burnout, to mitigate burnout, which is a big problem in the healthcare world, actually. And we showed that there's a significant improvement in burnout, um, well, in chronic stress, and those kinds of things um, in this in this group. So TM is a it's different than mindfulness. It's actually in a way, in a sense, very different because there you're learning a mantra, a phrase, and you use that phrase to essentially get to the point where you have very little thoughts. You sort of transcend the mantra to the point where you have very few thoughts. And so it's kind of a, the, you're emptying your brain in a sense um, and, and having much less thoughts and it can be a very pleasurable experience. Uh, it is something that you have to go through. There's it's a, there's a group that does an organization that teaches it called the TM group, uh, Transcendental Meditation. So you have to go through them, but it's something that there's a lot of data for. And then the other thing I was going to mention is Sky, Sudarshan Kriya Yoga. It's a kind of rhythmic breathing yoga. You breathe in certain patterns. And that's also been well studied. In fact, I just did a study. Uh, I'm uh, soon going to hopefully publish a paper on this. But we did a study where we looked at, again, burnout in clinicians, using uh, where we taught them this method to reduce their basically sympathetic nervous system activities, basically a way to decrease the fight or flight system. And it's not just for you know, this population. It's really for anyone when they feel stressed. Uh, it can be something very beneficial. So those are just mindfulness, as you mentioned, TM and uh, Sky, and there are other. There are lots of other different practices uh, which may have less data for them. But all of these things, I think, are good. Whatever works for you, it, it doesn't matter so much. I think uh, to choose one that works for you, and then you keep doing it. I think that's really the bottom line message. That's excellent. Yes, I uh, I actually have practiced TM myself. Uh, okay. And I found right. it very useful, actually almost more useful than mindfulness meditation mm -hmm. because of the active nature of it. My brain is very busy. And so I found yeah. that the active nature really fit with me versus the mindfulness meditation. I ended up just like sitting here every time I did mindfulness and writing down a list of tasks that were my brain. Right. So TM, right. actually, I kind of forgot what I was doing, which is an excellent uh, way to do it. So it's it's uh, mm -hmm. you can definitely get uh, training in that through the TM Institute. I believe mm -hmm. it's called the last one, uh, practicing sleep hygiene. Yes. I mean, I could have a whole podcast on sleep, mm -hmm. but not only yeah. sleep hygiene, which you go into detail here, but I have been curious not only about how sleep affects the brain, but sleep apnea, because we do have an mm -hmm. obesity, uh, epidemic going on. And I believe yeah. that can cause obstructive sleep apnea. Could you yes. tell us a little bit about how apnea or, or sleep issues can affect the brain? Yes. Um, yes. Sleep is, is absolutely critical for the brain, as you said. I mean, we, we spend about a third of our lives sleeping. So you can imagine that there must be a really good physiological reason that, that we're designed to do that, right? So if we're not sleeping well, meaning that either we're just not sleeping enough or the quality of sleep is not very good, either of those or both of those can absolutely affect brain functioning. Um, as kind of the obvious part is, of course, you're more fatigued, you're you know less efficient. But some things which are not so obvious are that you you can have ADHD like symptoms if mm. you're if you have sleep apnea for example so sleep apnea is really where you're not getting uh, proper oxygenation to the brain and we know that uh, in with people who may be more obese uh, they if they have a thicker neck especially they can have more constriction airway constriction and that's that's what you, sleep apnea is where you have this very loud snoring but not just that but you have you're gasping for air at night because you have this constriction in your throat. So that's an obstructive sleep apnea. And so for folks who have that, I've definitely encouraged them to get a sleep study. That's really the way to know if you actually have sleep apnea or not. 
Uh, the good thing about sleep apnea is it's very treatable. I mean, you can use a CPAP machine. There are other technologies that are available now. But any of those things can help kind of increase the airway uh, diameter so you're not, you don't have that resistance in your airway. You get more oxygen to your brain. And we do know in people who have sleep apnea, they can, they're at risk for all kinds of things, actually. So they can have more mood problems. There's more depression. Uh, they can have ADHD-like symptoms. Uh, also, it's not good for your cardiovascular health either because it's putting more strain on your heart because your heart has to compensate for this lack of oxygenation that's going on. So it can cause cardiac problems. So there are all kinds of things that can occur um, if that's not treated. So you know, it, it all sleep is definitely one of the main things I, I, I talk about this to my patients all the time. I mean, it's really important to sleep adequately. I think in our society, oftentimes we kind of think that, well, you know, we should be busy. We should be spending every hour doing something um, and we should not really be resting so much. But actually, as it turns out, that's exactly the wrong way to go. I mean, of course, you want to you want to be efficient in your work. And to be efficient in your work, you really need to make sure that you sleep adequately, sleep well. And it's not a luxury. I mean, I think people still sometimes think of it as a luxury. It's not a luxury. It's as important as food, drink, everything else that we do that is necessary for our body. Sleep is just as necessary. I, I love that you that you said that. Uh, there was this old adage that teachers used to say when I was in elementary school, and they'd say, the night before a big test, don't worry about studying. Make sure you get enough sleep. And I thought, mm -hmm. that sounds like a folktale. And then, of course, when I got into psychology, I learned that that was actually completely true and that you would perform better with a more rested mind. Um, I know we're almost running out of time, but I want to just tell the, the, the public here, this book, you know, not only goes over the traumatized brain, how that occurs, so but it has a lot of solutions. Obviously, you say this is not a substitute for medical treatment. Please see a doctor. But it goes over also emotional. I like how you divided these up. Emotional problems caused by the brain, of course, depression, mania, anxiety, PTSD, things like that, other, other issues, behavioral disorders caused by the traumatized brain. And oftentimes we get these things mixed up. Um, mm -hmm. with some of the other things I just mentioned, but this psychosis, which is a break from reality and different symptoms there, aggression, impulsivity, substance use disorders, apathy, sleep disturbances. I honestly think that this is important for parents out there who maybe have had a child who isn't necessarily, maybe they haven't had a brain injury, maybe they have, maybe they've had a concussion, or like you just said, inadequate sleep. Mm -hmm. we, have to, we have to look at what the obstacles to functioning are and what are these obstacles and that's why you've got to see a doctor slash psychologist slash neurologist depending on the situation what the issue is because mm -hmm. oftentimes by fixing one of these barriers working on one of the simple things you talked about with neuroplasticity especially children can mm -hmm. really rebound uh faster than adults so it's important to find out what is the root cause of the dysfunction or causes i suppose mm -hmm. and then in part five you discuss cognitive issues caused by the traumatized brain and i i just love how you you and your uh, other colleague divided these because you know in in my world as the therapist we're always looking at the dsm-5 tr which is a useful yet annoying book yes. because mm -hmm. it's 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 not really it, it's it's more for us to understand our kind of framework it's not right. necessarily as good for you know helping people i suppose <laughs> Um, but uh, but the cognitive issues are are very interesting because I think often uh, those are misdiagnosed, right? Mm -hmm. they, they go to doctor to doctor to doctor, and then all of a sudden, finally, they end up at a neurologist or you know mm -hmm. your office or something, and then mm -hmm. you have to run all these tests to see what's going on with memory and executive functioning and these sort of things. And then, goodness gracious, this is you know another scary part, which was the brain injury problems that are you know, from a traumatized brain going into like headaches and seizures and visual problems mm -hmm. and balance issues and hormonal issues that I think are very important for the public to know about. And considering that this book is not very expensive, I do think it's a good investment um, because you, like you said, you could put it on your, your nightstand. This is a night, this is a nightstand book. It's not a heavy textbook. It weighs about a half a pound maybe mm -hmm. uh, at, at that. So, um, you know, my audience is a lot of clinicians, but also a lot of the public. And um, I'm sure that this book can help them. Is there anything out there you would want to say to, you know, consumers who either have 
people in their lives with uh, brain injuries or or anything uh, like that about you know how to get help if they're not sure what to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that uh, ultimately, in my opinion, brain wellness is really critical for our quality of life, right? So if your brain is not functioning properly or optimally, then we're going to have a lot of problems in our life. And it could be that that's because of an over brain injury, as as we just talked about. It could be, uh, as we talked at the beginning of the show, environmental factors that are affected how the brain developed, you know, any of those things. But ultimately, the good news is that there are methods that we have now where we can actually, you know, very practical methods that can help us kind of uh, get the brain as much as possible back into order. And so I think it is, uh, you know, these are the things where education, I think, is really key. I mean, because a lot of times people don't understand yet, the public, lay public may not understand yet, that we do have a lot of behavioral techniques, which, you know, we describe in the book. We have a lot of new technologies as well, like we talked about with TMS and things along those lines. There, there's a whole genre of things that can be done. But of course, if you don't know that these things are treatable, then of course, you're not going to get them treated. So I think, you know, the, the way kind of to summarize all of this, in my mind, at least, is that really the brain is a network, right? It has all of these different networks, these circuits. You damage the certain networks or circuits, whatever the cause may be whether it's directly a traumatic brain injury, whether it's uh, something related to a developmental disorder, whether it's related to environmental factors like trauma, psychological trauma, PTSD, they all affect the brain. They all affect these networks. And ultimately, we can treat really kind of a whole wide variety of these problems as long as we kind of focus on the networks that are dysfunctional and we treat those networks. And you can do that not just with medications, we can do that with behaviors, behavioral changes, which we focus a lot in, in this book because it's not always about medications necessarily. Uh, it is about how you yourself can change your behavior. So I would encourage people to, if, if they have a loved one who had a traumatic brain injury or other brain injury, you know, it, you definitely obviously are going to treat what is overt, but don't neglect the other aspects. Don't neglect the behavioral changes that may occur or the mood changes or the attention problems or the memory problems or problems with multitasking or problem solving. You know, any of those things can occur due to a brain injury. And there are ways that we have now to address those symptoms. Great. I, I think that's great advice for everyone out there. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy to have interviewed you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much. So yes, uh, people out there, I will have all of the uh, contact information about how to get this book and how to learn more about Dr. Vajnani, Vajnavi, excuse me, and Dr. Rao in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, 
donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person, and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organization, such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week. No, 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 no.